When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello podcast fans, James here. Just wanted to give you a quick preview of what's coming up on today's show. We're really lucky to be joined by Mike McIntyre of the Tennis Canada podcast. He's going to talk to us all about Canadian tennis, including Felix Ogrelliasim in particular. We're also going to be chatting about the clay court season, action in Italy and Spain, and now of course southern France. And we'll also talk about our dream doubles, the best and the worst haircuts in tennis history. Hope you enjoy. Oh, and while I've got you... Please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and hopefully a decent rating. It makes a massive difference to us and helps us find more listeners, which really is the whole point and is why it's one in the morning and I'm recording an intro. Enjoy. Mike McIntyre of the Tennis Canada podcast, who I believe joins us now live from Canada, I hope. He's certainly in the room. I can see him. All we have to do now is rely on George Tech to connect him. Mike, are you there? I'm, I'm here. Can you guys hear me all right? Wow, we can. Hey, Mike. That is, uh, that is hugely smooth, although we've ruined it now by saying it. But that's, right, a giant, that's a giant win already for you, boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks very much for, for joining us, Mike, especially at such an exciting time to be involved in Canadian tennis, we had kind of already planned to come on here and talk about tennis in Canada and Felix Ogrelia's team anyway, but then he teamed up with one of the most famous coaches of the 21st century in Tony Nadal. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that that move. Did, did it take you by surprise and, and what do you think the rationale behind it is? Yeah, it didn't take me by surprise at all, considering how things have gone for Felix the past year or so. And and that's not to say that things haven't gone well. I mean, how many 20-year-old ATP professionals would love to say they've been in seven career finals already, right? So mm-hmm. lots of good things happening for him. But at the same point, he hasn't been able to get over that hump. And I, I think we can all probably agree that that's more of a, a mental barrier than it is anything to do with his, his physical capabilities on the court. I mean, anyone who can get to that many finals by that age is is going to break through at some point. He just hasn't figured that quite out yet. And so in terms of, you know, improving that that mental fortitude, bearing down in those moments, being able to play his best game, uh, who better to turn to than someone with the last name, Nadal, and uh, and Uncle Tony and, and everything he's done over the years uh, with, with Rafa. Now, I'm not saying I'm expecting similar returns, although we'd certainly take them here in Canada. But uh, I, I think this is a great addition to his roster. And just to be clear, 
Tony's not taking over as his coach. He's being added to the team. He's going to give some guidance and be there throughout the clay court swing. And uh, it's win-win. It's great for Felix. And let's be honest also for the Nadal side of things, not too bad to have someone like Felix training at Rafa's Academy and bringing a little, you know, extra notoriety there as well. Do you think this was, uh, we talked a lot about Felix on this podcast before, and, and I think he's worked with the same guys for quite a long time. Do you think this kind of freshening up process was, was kind of necessary to maybe just to change things a little? I mean, it's possible. I mean, how, how many players stick with the same coach or coaching staff throughout their entire career anyways? And for many players, when they turn pro, they're coming in with the same guys or, or, or crew that they've had as juniors and as well. And, and maybe it's time as they assert their maturity and their independence that they want to go off in a different direction. So I'm not saying that that's the case with Felix right now as he's bringing them in as an addition. But uh, at some point, you know, should he continue to struggle in those big pressure moments, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a, a changing of the whole team came through, but you know that's for him to decide. I, again, I, I think what he's accomplished so far is, is fantastic. And when you look at the three finals he lost last year, uh, Zverev in Cologne, Sisi uh, Pass in Marseille, and then Molfis in Rotterdam. Look, it's not like he's losing the slouches in any of those ones. Yeah, I, I was just going to say on that point. I mean, you, you mentioned it being a kind of mental hurdle for him um, to get through these finals. Are, are you surprised that there is any sort of mental blockage given kind of how good he was at a young level, like winning all these finals and stuff? Or what, is, is there any other factor that's kind of contributed to this mental thing, a, a moment you could pinpoint where you think he's perhaps lost confidence in these big moments? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I mean, I, I compare him often, as we all do here, to Denis Shapovalov because the two are essentially almost the same age, and, and they've been coming up together, Dennis breaking through a little bit earlier. Uh, and I think between the two of them, we, we would all say, hey, Dennis has the flashier game on the court, but Felix is really a rock in terms of his mental um, fortitude and, and capabilities. And uh, Dennis certainly does have more mental breakdowns in most of his matches. I think that's something we could do without, and, and we're still looking for that maturing process to happen with him. Felix is so mature. It's not a matter of maturity. You know, he doesn't have those those breakdowns on the court like Dennis does. And off the course, he's, he's so put together, already involved in charitable organizations and initiatives, which for 20 years old, again, was incredible. Um, but in those moments, it's got to be creeping into his head. It's got to be something that weighs on him. Uh, the more finals he gets to without pulling the trigger, you can bet that that's on his on his mind that the night before as he's trying to get a good night rest, you can bet that he's thinking about that. So it's just something he's going to have to, you know, go through and, and get that first victory. Um, you know, in some ways I think of, I believe it was uh, Yvonne Lendl back in the day who made quite a few finals, Grand Slam finals before finally being able to cross that barrier. And, you know, I have no doubt that Felix is going to do it. Um, hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but uh He's got to keep pushing, plugging away, and, and trying new things, which is what he's doing here with, with Tony Nadal. Well, we've got a guy here in the UK you may have heard of called Andy Murray who had a few uh, <laughs> few finals before he eventually got over the line. Whatever happened to that guy? Yeah. yeah. Who, who knows? I think, who knows? I think he wants to be a golfer now. <laughs> um, you mentioned kind of Dennis there, which kind of leads us on to, I think, a, a good next sort of theme. I mean... Ten Canadian tennis has really just <laughs> shot up amazingly, hasn't it? I mean, like if we think about almost 10 years ago, you had Ryanich and Bouchard, who at that stage almost felt like trailblazers in singles for Canadians. Um, 
And then after that, you've got Bianca winning a Grand Slam. You've got two guys who are top 20 or there or thereabouts, top 10, 20 men's players, Milos still kicking around. What on earth happened out there, Mike? How's this happened? <laughs> I can't share the secrets unless you want to pay me an obscene amount of money because we don't we don't want other countries to follow suit, of course. Hey, hey, look, you know, every country is going to go through an, an up and, and a down um, and, and have moments where things are really clicking and, and other moments where you're, you know, beating your head against the wall. But just even when you requested, you know, and asked me if I'd come on and talk Canadian tennis, it still gets me because... When I started, you know, in tennis, covering tennis back in 2008, I mean, I got asked to come on radio shows and, I mean, not podcasts back then, I guess, but but radio <laughs> certainly and TV, but never to talk about Canadian tennis because, and I hate to say it, but it's true, there was nothing to talk about, really. Uh, I mean, we had Daniel Nestor, you know, who accomplished everything in the doubles world, but uh, that just doesn't, you know, get people to, to listen or to tune in. So w- what we've experienced in the past 10 years or so is, is nothing short of phenomenal, and it's it's made my life a lot easier and my job a lot easier. <laughs> Although it bugs my wife because I get phone calls all the time when anything big happens with, with Canadian tennis players, you know, like uh, she's out now with the kids in the rain biking. God bless her. But um, so thank you for having me on, actually, to get me out of that duty. <laughs> but, Honestly, but there's what... a regular slot when they go biking. You can come on every week. <laughs> Beautiful. I'll tell her, hey, the boys want me back for a five hour slot every Saturday afternoon um, or, or whatever day of the week it is right now. Um is the pandemic, you know, but anyhow, to get back to your question, what is it that changed? Well, it's the trailblazers for sure. It's, it's having a Milos and a genie and say whatever you want about genie now, although she has, you know, been working her ranking back up towards the top 100, but those two definitely showed uh, Canadian tennis fans and young Canadian tennis players. We can do it. You know, we're not just a nation of beer drinking hockey players, although I do enjoy both those activities. Um, but we can handle ourselves with a tennis racket in our hand as well. And, you know, John McEnroe said to me, I don't know if I've used this one with you before, George, so just cut me off if you've heard it. But John (laughs) McEnroe told me back in the day that Canada would have a top 10 player if the sport was played on ice. And and he was joking (laughs) with me, but he was also kind of serious because at the time we had nobody in singles. And and I think when you have those first two that kind of cross that threshold and, and having one male and one female, well, that inspires, you know, others to get involved. And, uh, a lot of it is 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 dumb luck as well, you know, having someone like like Dennis and and Felix and and Bianca all coming up at the same time. I can't say that it was the big plan of Tennis Canada to do that and and you know, Dennis has always been a bit of his his, his own sort of lone wolf. So I don't even think Tennis Canada can really lay claim to him, but good fortune um bringing in the right type of people, coaches, program, uh challenging and pushing each other like Felix and Dennis are certainly doing to to hopefully both reach the top 10 in the next couple of years. Uh, it's a combination of things, and we're really happy that it's it's finally clicking here. So, yeah, I can actually shed a bit of light on um, on the question George asked, and I guess it ties in with what you're saying. So I was at a tournament in Greece about, around about exactly maybe three or four years ago, uh, four years ago, I think, when uh, there was a, a national, there was a team there from Tennis Canada, and their national coach was there with them. So I asked him if uh, I could have a sit-down with him just to, discuss what the system was in Canada and how you produce this this sort of group of players coming through at the same time and and it which seemed like a bit of a conveyor belt of talent and he told me sort of off the record I don't remember his name so I'm not even getting him into trouble here <laughs> that's um, the best way to do it yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
he told me that basically that there is no system, and he said we it, we we've had a perfect storm really, in that we've got <laughs> we've we've got a group of sort of five or six players in Rownage, Genie, uh, Felix, Dennis, and Bianca, and they've all come through, but they've none of them, as you've just said, or, or you said Dennis wasn't a standalone. He said none of them, other than Felix, really could be. The, the Tennis Canada could really lay claim to because they'd all gone somewhere else. So Jeannie was training in down in Florida for a lot of the time. Dennis came from wherever he was, and, and it was only Felix had come through them. But what he said at the time was he was like, um, but after these guys, we don't have anything. We don't have anything to come <laughs> through. Um, so we can't say that we have a system that- or a production line. So you're saying my weekly five-hour time slot won't exist ten years from now? Is that it? Not unless you can years. find some, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> what about my girl Layla Fernandez? We've got big hopes Thank for you. Her here. Thank you. There you go. I was going to say, right? Layla's only just turned eighteen a few months ago, and and look at what she's doing as well now. So I, I wouldn't say it's it's one extreme or the other. I don't know if I'd go so far as to agree with your unnamed uh, source here or forgotten <laughs> forgotten source, I should say. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, some of them came along and, and some of them didn't. Bianca was definitely involved with the Tennis Canada program. Felix was involved. Um, Milos and Jeannie Dennis, not, not so much. Um, I, I should say most of them do show up for duty when it comes to uh, Davis Cup and uh, Fed Cup slash now Billie Jean King Cup. Most of them do show up for that. So there is a sense of, of team unity. And certainly at those moments, they're, they're all helping each other out. And the younger players who were there, are learning from the more established ones like Layla Annie did at her first Fed Cup tie in 2019, where she was taking a back seat to now this week against Serbia. She's going to be the main go-to with Bianca's absence. This will be the first time Layla Annie can carry the Canadian team. And I think she's going to do just fine with that. So even if they all didn't come up through the program, that's not to say that they aren't helping each other out and helping other Canadian athletes to sort of find their groove and, and learn from these top players. Oh, to- totally, yeah, and and I think what I mean, maybe I sort of misquoted him a bit there. It wasn't they've had nothing to do with it. It was more that we can't say we have this system of producing players when each one of these players has come through a different type of system, if that makes sense, or, or mm-hmm. a different. They've gone through a different pathway of getting where they're supposed to be. But I think as well, what you're saying there is, I mean, we get a lot of this in Britain where who have the LTA produced and it's one of those the LTA doesn't actually produce players it's not the it's not the governing body's position to produce tennis players they might sort of take some into the the setup when they're 18 19 but it, it, we get this like well, they didn't produce Andy Murray and they didn't produce Dan Evans well they gave both of them a lot of money so <laughs> it, can, can they lay claim to saying that, right. that, 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 that you know and, and what they would chose to do without that and I know that they've both trained at the National Tennis Centre a lot and they've, <laughs> they, they, they both went on trips that were paid for by the LTA so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but yeah yeah uh, slightly changed but they didn't subject, produce um, them Calvin they just paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I always have the same line though with this, this word produce we produce them right there's only two people that produce any player that's the parents <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's where I'm I'm going to lay the blame with my mom and dad why I never made it anyway. Yeah. Um, Mike, just to change subject a, a little bit. Um, I got into a discussion with, I believe, your co-host, Ben, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, about what, what was deemed that I'd had a bit of a pop at uh, 
Felix and later Je- Dennis as well. Um, and I just want to give some context on that and, and get your your views on it. So, are you trying to but... turn me against my podcast host? <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason you're on. There's a reason you're on on your own, Mike. That we're on <laughs> separately, right? right. Well, Ben, if you're listening, I apologize for whatever I'm about to say. Then, sure. <laughs> so, so to give some context, Mike, I saw the first time I saw Felix was at the 2000. I'm going to say the 2016 junior davis cup in budapest Mm -hmm. and i think he just won the u.s open juniors um maybe three or four weeks prior to that or maybe not even that long maybe a couple of weeks uh prior to that and there was a buzz about him there was you know there was talk about him when we were on it i went with a british coaching team and um there was a talk about him that this guy may be the best athlete that we've ever seen in tennis um and when we got there and, and we watched him I've never seen anything like it from an athletic point of view. He he was phenomenal um, to the extent where he's almost like an alien coming in uh, to, to the sport. And so he's not he's, Canadian after he's not even Canadian. <laughs> Other world. Yeah. And and at the time, Mike, I watched him and I watched the final. They played Russia in the final. I'm going to say. Um, and I was talking to another couple of coaches, and we were saying this guy's already playing level of a of somebody ranked between. 70 and 40 in the world the way that what he was doing with on the court with his physicality and that kind of thing now i'm not saying he should have been 50 or so around about 50 in the world because he's there was some maturity issues maybe and that kind of thing but like you say he was he's always been very mature um and so fast forward into a couple of weeks ago i questioned whether he'd actually he was actually any better tennis player now not from a maturity point of view but an actual tennis player, whether he's any better now than he was four years ago. And I'm just not sure that from a point of view of the, the, the issues that he had in his game then are still the same issues that he has in his game now, mm. if that makes sense. Right. And I think the same, and I'll let you in in one minute, Mike, and I, I kind of feel a bit the same about Shapovalov as well. So I remember when Shapovalov broke through at the US Open when he got to maybe the quarterfinals, was it? Or last season? That's right. Your quarters last yeah. year. Yeah. And I thought he was phenomenal. I just thought he was, I've said to these two guys on, on the pod before, I, I think that Shapovalov is kind of like if John McEnroe was in his prime now, he'd play something like Shapovalov with, mm. with the sort of, he's a modernized version of that. And, and I, I was watching him last week in Miami. And again, I still feel that the same issues he had three years ago are, are the same issues he has now in his game. And, and I, I wonder whether you, you know, what your take on that was. Yeah, I mean, between the two of them, I, I can't say I agree, uh, you know, wholeheartedly there, and, and that's okay because it'd be pretty boring if I came on and did. But um, I, I think with Chapo, um, people look at the inconsistencies, and they're not seeing the results of the past three or four years, which have been for him. If I could start with him, absolutely stunning. I mean, we got to go back to 2017 when he made that semifinal run in Montreal, where he defeated Rafa in the round of 16, and that was his real coming out moment, you know, but then the year after he made the semis in Madrid on clay, which, you know, we're not known for producing clay quarters. So that was quite the result. 2019 Miami open semis, losing to Roger Paris masters, final losing to Djokovic. He won his first title in Stockholm and picked up a girlfriend along the way. Um, and then, and then in 2020, Oh, and I almost forgot the Davis cup finals heroics of 2019. I mean, his 2019 was fantastic outside of grand slam results. Uh, And that was at the age of, what, 19 years old, really. So, And then last year, yeah, U.S. Open quarters, he made it to five sets, losing to Pablo Carreño Busta. Uh, No shame in that. 
Rome semifinals, losing to Schwartzman. I mean, I think he is making progress every year. His rankings certainly would indicate that as he's, uh, you know, on the cusp of the top 10 now. Uh, so I think with Shapo, it's easy to say, well, where are the improvements? Because he'll still flame out first round or, or have a stretch of a few months where it's not happening. And that's true. And the consistency isn't there. But what he's still been able to accomplish year by year, to me, he is showing progress. Uh, it's just maybe tough to see sometimes when he's in the midst of a, a slump and things haven't clicked so much so far in 2021 for him. Um, but I do see progress there from Chapo. And, uh, and I, I do see that the, he's working on that mental part. It doesn't always come across, but, but that's the major hurdle for him. If he can just calm down and, and not have the uh, comparisons to Johnny Mack there. Um, but just, uh, you know, let that talent rip and, and cool his jets in those moments where it's not working and stop with the whining. Uh, I, I think he, he definitely is showing improvements. Felix, I know it feels that way. I mean, I don't know about being the same as four years ago. Although I remember the first time I saw him play, he must have been 15 or 16, and he went for a shirt change, and I was like, holy abdominal muscles. Like, I'm never <laughs> going to have those in my life. And, and this kid is, is, you know, barely hit puberty, and he's got a 12-pack down there. Um, and, and again, I think it's easier when, when you come along and uh, you've got so much confidence because you've been playing lights out as a junior, and you expect that to continue, and, and you have some good early returns, and all these players are wanting to practice with you and whatnot, but... Then as you settle in and you realize the grind of the tour, I mean, that's a different beast as well. When you're traveling city to city, when you're away from your family, now let's not forget we're in a pandemic as well. I mean, to be 20 years old and dealing with all these things, he's still adjusting to just being a, a professional tennis player on a full schedule. So um, I, I do agree that this seems like there's a bit more of a stall in his progress on the court. Um, but but again, I don't think it's nearly as big a deal as some people are are making it out to be. I'm, I'm more of a half full kind of glass guy, as you can tell. <laughs> I, I, th- I think, Mike. I think, Mike. What, what I was trying to say there is, and maybe I didn't um, sort of say it properly, was that I mean, I, I think both of these guys are fantastic players, and there's no question based on their rankings. And I think it's almost because of that that I wouldn't say disappointed, but that I would question it. I see both of these guys as multiple Grand Slam champions. And I think they're really elite level players. So um, the, the sort of what may come across as criticism. It, it's it's in that context of these are both phenomenal talents, and I I have high expectations for both of them, and and I think what I'd say on it is that I think there maybe has been improvement in their top levels, what they can do when they're at their best. I've still got questions about whether either of them have have improved their their middle and bottom levels, and can they win the big matches when it's maybe not all clicking. And that type of thing, and and I think that's where you that's where the real improvement will come in both players, and I'm certain it will come in both players. But that's when we'll see where where Shapovalov can win a match when he's playing sort of five and a half, six out of ten, and he can beat a decent player when he's doing that, and and, and that sort of thing. And and I think on Felix there, one of the Mark Petcher, who's a tennis commentator, former player, and excellent commentator over here, he made a point. To, to me the other week when he said that um, Felix has always had this, he's always had a bit of an issue on his second serve mm-hmm. um, and he's just had, so last year he had what, four months when we were in lockdown or where there was no tennis and no competitions to work on that second serve and he was saying he was disappointed that he came back and it doesn't look any better than what it was before that period and, and it's very rare that you get a four-month period to Absolutely. work specifically, technically on something and see an improvement. And I think he was he was hoping, Petch was was hoping that there'd be an improvement there and there just wasn't really. And it's the same, I guess, with Dennis, that it's kind of the same. 
I think that's what I say is that when I watched mm. him last week at Miami, you kind of I'm watching it thinking you know it's the same sort of weird double faults at, at terrible times, and he had like a put away volley I think in the tie in the final set tiebreak or maybe when he was when he got broke, and it's a shoulder height volley, and he's put it about four meters long. And it's like, come on, you can make those. These are not sort of, these are not things you can't do. They're things you're just not doing. Yeah, yeah, no, I I hear you. And certainly people here in Canada, I mean, we love what we've got. There's also an element of impatience. And again, you know, 20, 21 years old. So I think we've got lots of time for them to work those those things out. And, uh, you know, we're just waiting for the big three to retire so that, uh, you know, we can have our (laughs) our moments, you know. Yeah, aren't we all? Uh, Listen, Mike, it's been terrific to have you. And thank you so much for giving us your insight. I'm sorry we've kept you so long, but maybe maybe we can keep you a bit longer next time and, and you can stay away from the chores and the family longer. I'm not texting. I'm not texting my wife for another two hours. So just you know, <laughs> if we have to corroborate the story, just let us know how long our podcast was. Will do. Uh, have a great day, guys. Fun. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, and cheers, guys. Thank you so much. It's Mike well, McIntyre there from the Tennis Canada podcast. You want to find out more about Felix Augustine, Leila, Annie Fernandez, who we mentioned there, Bianca Andrescu, who we barely talked about. You can go and listen to the Tennis Canada podcast wherever you get them. Um, and you can also head over to Twitter and follow Mike McIntyre on there as well. And you can see him arguing with Calvin on a near daily basis these days. Um, we've got to move on to the clay season. We mentioned clay there. Felix, of course, was a French Open junior finalist as well. People always forget that. He was a decent clay court player as a junior. But we're into the clay court season uh, over here in Europe, uh, as well as over in the US, I think. Um, it was a little bit uh, interrupted, shall we say, on the first. I mean, I know we had play on Saturday and Sunday in Monte Carlo, but the first day proper of the Monte Carlo Masters was um, damp, to say the least. They're quite heavy balls anyway, and there was rain in the air. It was quite cold. I saw more hitting clay out of shoes than I did hitting balls on clay, quite frankly, um, because it looked incredibly unpleasant. Um, there were a few results. Uh, the most important one for the tennis podcast was that Lorenzo Mazzetti, George's boy, <laughs> as he now consistently called him, which is rather unpleasant, actually, was beaten uh, by Aslan Karatsev. The lion roars once again. Um, George, I assume that you watched as much of your boy as possible. And, and even if you didn't, you'd better pretend that you did so that you look like a proper professional. Um, uh, people say Karatsev's best surface is clay. I actually watched, I watched the first set and then I had a uh, engagement with, the pubs reopening today. <laughs> right. um, I think we can so, always forgive you. Yeah, um, I, I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good set actually. Um, I thought, you know, Massetti, as we know, I, I, I call him my boy on text. I don't really call him that publicly, but uh, he he he's fantastic on clay. I mean, he, he's a brilliant watch. Uh, last week, get really uh, kind of clutch win over Dan Evans that we were all watching. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm expecting massive things. And you know, he got a wild card into Monte Carlo this week, and I was just thinking, oh, just get yourself a half decent draw first round, find your feet quickly. And I think Karatsev is probably one of the guys you want to avoid more than anyone else at the minute, isn't he? I mean, he's just in such ridiculous form. And Musetti played pretty well in that set that I watched. I mean, it was pretty close. He had, a, I think, he had a few chances to break back at four three, um, and then must have been broken again right at the end. Um, but he it was lost close. a lot of he lost a lot of points on serve. Like yeah, he, I, I know that's kind of obvious when you lose a match, but he went. At, he was going after the second serve, carrot serve particularly. Um, I think yes. that's an area where Musetti is going to have to improve. Um, 
But, you know, Massetti was going after him too. But it was a really good match, the bits I saw. Um, and, you know, I, it doesn't dampen my spirits for Massetti. He just needs to get some better draws in first rounds, really. Which will happen as he makes his way up the rankings, which, of course, you're, you're hoping he does, and, and presumably he will. Um, I, I did actually, of course, neglect to mention that we've had a whole week of clay court tennis because I forgot that there were two made-up tournaments <laughs> last week because they didn't exist. They were just sort of things to fill the schedule. Um, Lorenzo Sonego uh, beating Laszlo Gere in... Uh, is that in Sardinia? Or was that... Yeah, that's yeah. in Sardinia. And then Pablo Carreño Busta beating Jaime Munar. Um, in Marbella. Uh, there was a good run there for Carlos Alcaraz as well, someone we've talked about uh, quite a lot on this podcast. He reached his first, I'm going to say quarterfinal, or I was going to say semifinal, but now semi. I can't remember. Semi, it was semi. Um, which, you know, in a 250 for a guy who's still a pretty young teenager, he's up to 117 in the world um, next week, which will be his career highest ranking, nearly into, he might sneak into a Grand Slam main draw if people don't people don't come over if there's enough withdrawals. I mean, at the moment, you know, I think a lot of people might choose not to go to France. So so we'll see how that pans out. But anyway, a good week for him. Um, not such a great week. And actually, if you ask me, quite a bad draw, although his match is halfway through for Dan Evans. As you mentioned, George, we, we watched that match last week. Um, today, he's a set into playing Dusan Lejovic, the Serbian, who single-handed backhand, good clay court player, not a great draw for Dan, but he, he mentioned Nick the first set. Um, Calvin, I know he's working with with a, a new coach at the moment in one of our beloved trial periods. Uh, we'll come on to exactly what that means in a minute, but um, you know, clay court goals for Dan. What do you make of Dan's a clay court player? Um, I think it's quite strange. I remember when he was when he was younger, when he was in juniors, and they used to be on the ITF website. There used to be a little thing where the, the players would have to click their favourite surface, and his favourite surface was clay. Um, and he was kind of known a bit like that because he was obviously small, made a lot of balls, had good hand skills. But as happens with most British players, I think that kind of fades away. But I wouldn't say he's a terrible clay court player. Um, I think he's probably quite decent on all surfaces. The problem with clay is you get these guys who tend to be very, very good clay court players. Um, mm. And coming across players like that, like Mussetti and um, Laovic. Laovic being the final at uh, Monte Carlo before, hasn't he? So. Mm. Um, again, it, it, it's tough. That's always it's just always tough for the British players to compete on clay because we don't grow up on it. It's for for some of these guys, it's just second nature. They can move on it. There's a natural movement to it, and that's always the problem. And and Evo, to be fair, is is one of the very best movers around, but it's a different mm. kind of movement. And with some players, it will suit him more because he like he can move them around, use his skills a bit more. He doesn't have huge weapons though, so. The, and we're going more into a, a direction now on clay court tennis where the guys with huge weapons are hitting through the court. Kind of started by Vavrinka, I guess, the way he mm. won the French. And we're seeing it more now with Massetti, how he, he's a clay court player, but he's not a clay court player. In, if you said someone was a clay court player 10 years ago, you'd have them standing 20 foot behind the baseline, never missing a ball. Whereas mm. Massetti's like a modern day clay court player where it's, it's kind of like what Wawrinka was. Is that is that because for any particular reason? Is it because the surface has changed, or, or is it yeah, just the way I, the game has gone? I think the surfaces have have got quicker. Clay court, court clay courts have got quicker. They've been quicker for about fifteen years now, to be fair. But I think now there's there's less change. There's there's less change in speed from a hard court. I think it's now just the movement on it that, that is the issue. Um, although this this week might be interesting in Monte Carlo because it's overcast 
and damp, yeah. and that will make the court wet and heavy. We'll see it be more like a sort of mid-90s clay court, I would think, if that continues. Well, that's what I found quite interesting about the character of Massetti game. I mean, look, character of seeing it like a beach ball at the moment. You know, he just he was stepping into the, you know, in conditions when it was really hard to hit through the court, he was doing so. And just with that utter confidence that he has at the moment where he comes two feet inside the baseline and, and just produces shots from nowhere. Um, but- so I think, you know, anyone who comes up against him is probably going to fear him. He's got Stefan Sissipas in the next round, by the way which I think will be a pretty tasty encounter um, after Tsitsipas very proudly got passed by in the first round, um, which he, I only say that because in a press conference, someone said, oh, you, you might have Karatsev in the first round. And he said, no, no, the second round. And they the, said, the, well, your first round. And he's like, but it's the second round. Like, well, you didn't win to get there, mate. There's nothing to get really prickly about. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Cal, I yeah, speaking of getting somewhere where a person doesn't deserve, I noticed him and his brother in with another wild card into the <laughs> <laughs> um, another hard, another hard-earned wild card for Petros. Hey, there. they won a match. They won a match the other week. Their yeah, first doubles win in about a year and a half. Uh, I, I mean, they, you know, they didn't make anything of it. But, yeah. Um, no, the, the on on the slow court, slow courts are always an interesting one for players because there's two different ways of looking at it depending on the point of view and who's won the match. Usually, yeah. so you'll often get the situation where someone will go, oh, it was so slow, you just couldn't hit winner, you know, what could I do? I couldn't do anything out there, it's so slow. And then you get other guys going, yeah, you know, the court was so slow, he he just had the power, he could hit through it. And then <laughs> it's, it's two, it always depends on who's wit, on, on how they want to frame a match. So yeah. you can say that it, a slow court wouldn't suit Karasev to one degree because it's slow and he plays aggressive and he hits big. Or you could say, I tell you what, slow clay court could suit Karasev could suit Karasev because his opponents are not going to be able to hit through it and he can. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, and that's what that, and, and funnily enough, you know, it's completely contradictory, but that's what it looked like, it, you yeah. know, in that match. It looked like he had the power and the, the clean hitting to hit through it and, and Mazzetti was completely hamstrung by the conditions. It, it was really strange. But yeah, as I say, he's on to play Titipas in a match that will probably already have finished by the time you hear this podcast, but it's quite an intriguing draw. Um, George, it's our first kind of sighting of uh, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, who, who we expect to be the two you know, big contenders for the French Open um, at the end of May. Djokovic has got a pretty intriguing little draw, you know, because I think he's either got Sinner or Ramos Vinolas in, the, in, in his first match. I know that Monte Carlo is very much his territory, but I don't think he would choose to play against either of those players, would he? Certainly not Sinner. Um, no. I think, you know, Ramos Benolas has had good results on clay in the past. Um, I, mm. I would say that his best results came a few years ago and he's not reached those heights for a while. Um, and I, as Calvin is saying, if we're talking about people needing to hit through Novak, that, that's probably not going to be one of them. Uh, but Yannick, <laughs> Sinner is, Yannick Sinner is someone who could. Um, and. Yeah. You know, if you look at Sinner at the French Open last year, he, he was, to me, I know Schwartzman gave Nadal a, a decent game, but I, I, Sinner was the player who was taking the racket out of Rafa's hands in heavy, wet conditions um, and, and bullying him, really. And, you know, Yannick, who obviously I spoke to earlier this year, he, he you know, he, he regretted not winning a set in that. And potentially, you know, if he took that first set, OK, it's a long way to go against Rafa on clay, but, you know, the tail, you know, the wind would have been in his sails, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that's a match Novak really wants to play as a, as a first one, absolutely. But that said, 
uh, Novak did teach Sinner a bit of a lesson uh, in Australia, which I know is slightly different conditions, but he, he, he kind of dominated him a little bit at one of their exhibition events where he, he was coming in saying he didn't want to play with blisters and came out and blitzed him away about 6-2 or something. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say it would be a draw Sinner would want either for someone who, who really wants to kind of boost up the ranking. I think just going sort of just going a bit back to talking about the surfaces and and what is what is a clay court, what is a clay court play now. I think you can best be summed up with in the last maybe five ten years we don't have the, the, the players who make the last stage of the clay court tournaments tend to be the same players who make the last stages of all the tournaments. We don't have these guys around who I remember the year when um, Berisategui made the final of the French um, and you had Felix Mantier and people like this and Albert Costa won won the French Open and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, you'd always get these guys in the latter stages who didn't do anything on any of the surface. But now you look at the French, I mean, Nadal wins it every year, but he also wins on other surfaces as well. Um, mm. And he, he just happens to be, that just happens to be his best surface. But other than that, you get like team. He's won a Grand Slam on a hard court. You get uh, Pass last year. He, we're, we're saying that he might be the next guy to win Wimbledon. So we, we, there's not that sort of, that there's, there's less clay court specialists now than they were before, which I think also it either signifies that the courts have changed or I don't know whether it's maybe, a you know, someone mentioned to me last year, it, does it make winning the French easier? Because you don't have to go through these guys who are just brutal on this one surface. You don't have to go through first round against Felix Mantier and then take on Beresategui and then Albert Costa and, and that type and then Thomas Muster. It, it, it's more like we're playing the same guys just on a different surface. I'd say that there's a couple of the really young guys, I'd say, who are emerging, who potentially could be in that. I, I think I'm thinking kind of like Jaume Moudar. Yeah. It seems to me very kind of um, even Massetti to a degree. I mean, we've spoken about how long his backhand takes to wind up and stuff. You know, Clay does kind of seriously. I, you know, I, I do I do take your point, but it does seem particularly this little young generation. There are a couple of pockets of players who I. Lavo yeah. is another one, actually. I mean, I know yeah. he's not really next gen, but there are there's the odd player who's popped up that I, I agree with you on the whole. A few years ago, I couldn't name anyone apart from like Ramos Vinolas, who I would say is won't win a match on anything but yeah. play. Um, you kind of you kind of used to get these guys as well. Who's like it doesn't happen anymore, but there'd be like a Masters series going on in Miami, and there'd be like a two fifty going on in, on in like <laughs> in uh, in Morocco. And they'd just be full of these guys who just, they literally would not play in it. And remember, they, there was a time where they just, they'd just they just been Wimbledon. Even if they got into it, even if they ranked like 17 in the world, they just wouldn't bother coming to Wimbledon. They'd, they'd, <laughs> they'd get two weeks more on the clay ready for that tournament. Like, is it, is it um, the one that's straight after? Is it Stad? Um, um, yeah, that, that is <laughs> one of them. Yeah. And, you, and there's one in Croatia get... as well. You don't get you get those oh, yeah. guys like you say like um, like Umar. but even Massetti I think although we say Clay again I think he's in more than Nadal terms that Clay will be his best surface but it wouldn't surprise me if he's comp- especially the way that hard courts are pretty slow now that he's competing at the last stages of of, of those slams as well I, I wouldn't say mm. he's a, I think it's the difference between someone who's good on clay and a clay court specialist I'm not yeah. sure you get many clay court specialists anymore. But- Laszlo I mean, there is genuinely a clay court yeah. specialist. Then. Like, his yeah. record on everything else is terrible. It's the last <laughs> of an era. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's when you see... I, saw, I can't remember who he beat, but Marin Cilic beat someone half-decent on clay last week. And I was like, yeah. mm, that's, that's not normal. That's not yeah. a thing that should be happening. Um, and yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's a great shame um, that we don't have 
it, it, it's it's one of two things, right? And we'll probably know in ten years' time what was the cause of this. But the the homogeneous the homogeneous nature of the Grand Slam winners in the men's game over the last ten or fifteen years, I think, may well have been down to the fact that the surfaces change less than they used to. Now, it yeah. might also be because we've had three of the greatest players of all time playing all at the same time, and that's almost certainly true as well. But it'll be pretty interesting to see if the next 10 or 15 years are still just four or five guys all winning slams with no real difference or dominance on surfaces. Because that might well be the case. Because, as you say, Team is a brilliant clay court player, but he's won a hard court slam. Titi Pass is probably an all-quarter and could win a slam on any surface. This is perhaps what we're going to see. Is for, We're not going to end the big three era. We're just going to have a different three or a different four. Um, which kind of brings me on to Daniil Medvedev, who uh, has been talking about how much he hates clay this <laughs> week, which I always think is a, a sort of bold move at the beginning of a swing. You know, if it's the end of the swing, you can be like, yeah, I actually didn't really enjoy that very much at all, and I really hate it. But to come out in, you know, the first event that you play of a swing and say, and this, I'm quoting him verbatim here, I'm not hiding this, I don't like clay. I'm not going to South America, although I do like to travel, I'd like to go there once in my life, of course, but I'm not going to go there instead of Rotterdam or Marseille. <laughs> or Dubai. I'm not going to play clay down there, especially after what happened two years ago. I know I can play well on this court. Every time I practice on clay, after I play the match, I try to do my best, but it's difficult. I hope I'm going to have good results this year, but honestly, there's nothing I like on clay. There's always bad bounces. You're dirty after playing. I really don't enjoy it. <laughs> but it's, 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 good, it's good to hear someone talking about that on clay. We normally get that about the grass. Grass yeah. always used to get guys coming. I, I once there was once a tournament in Britain where an American guy um, said that grass is for smoking. Um, <laughs> I've not heard too much about that before. It's always like grass is for cows or something like that. But um, <laughs> I, I think with Medvedev, to be honest, it's his, it's it's his build. It's his, you don't get many guys who are great on clay at his height and with his build. He's, he's quite sort of gangly. And I think again, we sounding like a broken record. We come back to the movement. It's just naturally yeah. hard for a tall, gangly guy to move on a surface that moves underfoot. I was, was going to say, the, the only other player I remember in recent times really going after the clay like that was actually Kyrgios. And uh, his his statement was that he hated that it got his trainers dirty. And uh, that that was a big issue for him, like the sneakers. Totally um, I, I love it. Silly. Like I love playing on it in terms of, I think it gives your tennis shoes a bit more kind of character. So he's like he's gone out of his way to play more matches, which I find very odd. He's he's been drawn against my favourite doubles pairing, which is Grigor Dimitrov and David Goffin. They I think they <laughs> they quite often and certainly have before played doubles together in Monte Carlo. Um, and I just think aesthetically, I think it's we're going to come on to aesthetic doubles pairings. But from an aesthetic, both tennis and general good looks. And okay, I have a Dimitrov thing. Let's get over it. But. <laughs> I think they're the best double pairing from that particular point of view. Sorry, George, you were going to say. I was going to say, even though Daniel's kind of gone after the clay, I, I still, knowing him and what he's like, I, I kind of view these comments as part of a tactical warfare for the wider clay season. It wouldn't surprise me if he's just kind of really trying to over-egg the pudding and make people oh, you think, think he's playing he's a quick target. I think a little bit. Um, 
He's too good and too good at competitors. Yeah, but he's too good and too big a competitor to just be like, oh, I can't do this completely. Um, I mean, no, Novak, funnily enough, to, I was just going to say, Novak, funnily enough, was asked about Medvedev's comments straight after, and he he kind of said a similar thing to Medvedev. I, I think there's genuinely a bit of a kind of, a, okay, we're definitely not going to beat Rafa on this, so we need to find a few excuses why this is hard for us. Um, <laughs> right, okay. That's them. a heck of a conspiracy theory, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we will find out pretty quickly what he thinks of the play because if, if he gets through to the third round he's probably going to get Fabio Fanini which is a pretty pretty severe examination assuming you know he turns up and has a decent day that's a pretty solid examination of your skills because he's someone who who has beaten Rafa on clay of course so um be interesting to see how he goes in Monte Carlo and whether it really is just playing possum but we will soon find out I, I alluded there to the aesthetic of Grigor Dimitrov and David Goffin as a doubles pair, which brings us neatly on to dream doubles. This week we've gone, because the barbers are open and none of us have been, or the, well, Calvin may have been, but um, <laughs> because none of us have been today to get our hair cut, um, maybe it's not as appropriate. But lots of people all over Britain, I know we have lots of listeners from all over the world, but also lots in the UK who've been to get their hair cut today. Congratulations, happy haircut day. But our dream doubles pairings this week are the best and worst haircuts in tennis. So you've got the one who's been to the barbers maybe too much and the one who should maybe spend a little bit more time there. Um, I'll go to you first, George. Who, who have you picked this week? Oh, crikey. I was, I was hoping you were going to come to me third because I've kind of forgotten who I was going to. I, I know who my favourite one is. Um, <laughs> As in your best haircut? Yeah, my best one. I've gone for Venus Williams at the 2013 US Open. I saw you I, post this earlier. Could you think you could describe it to us? It's kind of like she's tied up the back of the hair and she's dyed it pink and there's a bit of kind of braiding and I don't know. I, it just to me, it, lo- it looked like a Cornetto raspberry swirl. Yeah, it's awesome. And she's wearing like a nice flowery dress with it as well. I, I just, think, I just think she's got the whole, the whole look going. It just, it just felt to me she'd worked really hard on that and I think she pulled it off. So that, that was my favourite. I, I like yeah. haircuts that I can't pull off. I think that's kind right. of how I view them. So, and and do you think that, uh, I mean, I would argue that's almost all of them, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll forget by that. Uh, uh, the wor- do you ha- have you remembered who your worst well, one is? Well, the worst one, I, I was kind of going towards Holger Rune, but then I, sure, I, I, I did kind of, I stopped to think, I, I wasn't sure I necessarily wanted to dig out a poor 17-year-old and call him the worst in, in the whole of tennis history. So yeah, I, yeah, it looks like he struggles with insecurities, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> So it um, might really he says he's going to win job. 10 French Opens. Yeah. yeah. So I, I actually dug out quite a good picture of Federer earlier, and I'm going to go for that. I thought it was absolutely awful. Um, I think it's from Ponytail. 1998. Oh, it's, like, yeah. uh, it's like a really big, I don't, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's kind of like, he obviously got that ponytail quite cool by the, by the time yeah. of Wimbledon in 2006. Cool in inverted commas, but he rocked it because he's Roger Federer. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. this is a haircut so bad that it looks bad on Roger Federer, um, which mm. I think has to be a next level bad haircut. So I'm going to call this the worst haircut in tennis history. And I'm to guessing fair, we'll share Rod- these with images, but this is a Roger really Federer bad one. Go- Roger Federer is going very bald and, and he's not hiding it well. But we'll come on to that a bit in a moment. Uh, Calvin. On that note, uh, who have you picked? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I'm not I'm not putting him in my team, but the the best haircut of any tennis player ever, and maybe anyone ever, is Bjorn Borg around about 1976. 
I think. Um, yeah. Just a phenomenal use of hair. And I've, I've mentioned this on the pod before, but I have a real... Because for anyone who hasn't seen me, I have no hair. Um, and I, it, I, think, it, I don't think not, I've mentioned that before. There's nothing that winds me up more than people wasting their their hair on crap. And like everyone should just, if you can grow hair, just grow it like Bjorn Borg did in 1976. That that's that's the peak the peak of hair. Um, yeah. So coming to my tip, my team, uh, worst hair um, is Andre Agassi, 1988, the full right. mullet, absolute yeah. full mullet. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. Uh, with <laughs> I don't think you'll top. get many arguments on that. To be fair, yeah, this is for anyone who didn't. It, know, so it is... looked like it looks like um, someone's like taking cousin it from the Adams family and then tried to circumcise it yeah. with his headband. This is the one that there's one. This is like even before he became sort of really famous. I, it might even be a little bit before '88, where it was when he was about 17. And there's there's some pictures. I'll try and find one and put it on Twitter. And it's it's absolutely dreadful. Um, yeah. So, so just to say that that's been brought back, hasn't it? Was it, it was JJ Wolf who brought this back last yeah, year? Yeah, maybe. Look. Although I think oh, he's yeah. just a, from that part of America where it's never gone out of fashion. <laughs> that, that, that haircut. Um, so um, yeah, so that's my worst and my uh, the best haircut who will partner Andre Agassi in 1988 is Andre Agassi 1996 uh, when he shaved his hair. And got the best haircut you can have because uh, it's the same as I you, have. You know, I'm actually so glad that I was almost going to do that exact same combo, Calvin. So, I, yeah. I, I literally did write down Andre Agassi and Andre Agassi. Because yeah, he's a great on, team. Yeah. Quadruple, <laughs> quadruple A. Yeah, he just he just looks. Some people don't look right bald, and I'm not I'm not going to make any aspersions about members of the board, <laughs> um, rightly or wrongly. But Andre Agassi, he's got a head that is just round enough for it to be right. It's not too round, you know, with too roundness. There's a bit of a flat top. You could put a cup of tea on his head if you wanted to. And it just, it just looks right. It just looks absolutely well, right. Well, speaking from someone of expertise, the, the issue with people who don't look right is like, I don't know what you call it, but it's like if your head comes out at the back, that's right. really good. And like, yeah, yeah. and... Yeah, and Andre was like, luckily, he he doesn't. um, But it was a huge thing. I don't know if anyone remembers it when it happened. Like, he got rid of it. He turned up at the Australian Open. And obviously, it wouldn't happen now because of social media and someone would get hold of it. But he just turned up at the Australian Open and all his flowing locks had gone. He'd shaved them off. And he was going for (laughs) the... um, he went for the pirate bandana and he changed everything, though. The biggest image change you've ever seen in tennis, because he used to have like the, the, the way that he wore his kit. He'd got rid of the cycling shorts by this stage, but he had the, the baseball cap and the, the ponytail through the baseball cap. The kind of crop top Nike tops that he used to wear and the shortest shorts. And then he turned up at this Australian Open and he was like he had like these long knee length baggy shorts, this huge baggy top and the bandana. On, it, on his head, which covering that he'd shaved all his head off. His hair mm. off. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a fashion icon on so many levels, Andre Agassi. I can't yeah. argue it. As I say, I, I did make a note that says Andre Agassi and Andre Agassi, but I knew I would not be the only one to have that idea. <laughs> um, as you will all know, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. You also know that I'm currently living in Oxfordshire for the next couple of weeks, um, and I live quite close to a Mr. Tim Henman, who has... <laughs> The perfect hair. He just, it's, it's never moved. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing Tim Henman's hair 
having moved. And you, you have to remember as well, I'm a public, I'm a public school boy. I was brought up one way in the same way as a lot of other boys have been. And it's that your hair should be neat and tidy and preferably black. And he has all of that. He, he has the, the perfect neat haircut. Matron would never be sending him off to the barbers with a postal order. That's, that's for sure. So I can only say that Aston Tyrrell's finest has also the finest hair. It's the first um, and, and only time. The first and only time that Tim Henman <laughs> will be used as a as a, a good thing in style. <laughs> for, for, for a guy who always looks like he's just left a tech conference, James <laughs> put him in there as a style icon. Honestly, I, he is my style. Um, and the worst, I mean, Raf Nadal has several entries in this category, in my opinion. Very young Rafa Nadal with a proper centre parting is really bad. But also, and I talked a little bit about Roger Federer going bald, Rafa Nadal's going bald in a big way. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. you've ever read Gareth Bale baldness conspiracy theories, um, but it's, it's, I think it's worse than Gareth Bale. The, the story with Gareth Bale, by the way, is that he's been bald since about the age of, like, 19, and that he grew that hair to cover it up. Like, it's a full ponytail <laughs> comb over, and he's actually just got no except stuff that grows right from the front. And that's kind of my theory. Who started now. these conspiracy theories? People with too much time on the internet. Calvin put his hand up like I, it was I, him. I, 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 can, no, I, I can shed some light on. I can shed some light somewhere on this, right? Not on the conspiracy theory, but in, in the in the bold community, as we like to country, uh, <laughs> refer to ourselves as. Like the, the biggest sin is what we call bold denying. And right. this, is, this is what Federer and especially Nadal are doing. And a mate of mine uh, and, and myself, whenever we see any great bald denying on the street, we'll always get a picture of it and, 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 send, it to, and send it to the other one. And, uh, and for anyone who's like, this was like one of the, the peak of the, the industry of bald denying was when somebody on, on Twitter said that him and his mates, when they see anyone doing it, they start singing to the tune of Madonna's Borderline. They start singing... Bold denial. <laughs> <laughs> and now I encourage anyone to go and listen to the song and just and just see how brilliantly it fits in. It, it, it's it's a workabout. So yeah. So now whenever we see somebody, we, we'll we'll hum the tune to each other. I think I've got the uh, title of the podcast for this week. Then the bold deniers. <laughs> very easy. Federer and Nadal. Yeah. Po- but yeah, they they both are. It's it, it's it's getting quite horrendous. And you know, we we can, there's he- stages of it. Is it something to do with playing tennis? Because I was thinking about it, and there's a lot of tennis players who like going bald at the age of thirty. Like Murray, Murray is going bald in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, it, obviously, Federer and Nadal, and I guess they're a little bit older. Well, Federer is anyway. But like Pete Sampras went really quite badly bald quite early on as well. And no, it's, this... it's, it's just hereditary. It's like it's, it's apparently on your granddad. It's your granddad on your mum's side. If they were old, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but yeah, it's it's, it's not. So it's nothing bad. to do with wearing a hat a lot. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't. I don't think it is. No. Um, okay. But yeah, it's it's pretty bad from those two though, and yeah, yeah. I was I was also considering Novak Djokovic for having a head like a microphone. <laughs> well, <laughs> like just well, that sort of, you know, yeah, when it's short yeah. and I'm, you want I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you can go for Henman being your best and Novak your worst. They've pretty no, much Djok- got the same lid, don't they? Djok- Djokovic has got that haircut. Someone who I went to school with did this right. And it's like, no matter how long their hair was, it would just grow out and up. Like, there'd never be <laughs> yeah, a point exactly. where it started, like, the, 
There'd never be a point where the weight of it would start pulling it down. It would just yes. carry on going. And not like an afro, because that's curly. Just like mm. straight hair, no matter how long it is. Yeah, like like a sort of microphone muffler. That's, that's yeah. how I imagine yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, it's just the same length all over. Um, right, well, we'll put these on Twitter, of course, uh, and you can have your say. Uh, George won last week uh, with his uh, pair did of Didier Drogba and Jack Grealish. Yeah, he did. People um, have got taste. A, a very, Fantastic. A, a close but relatively low turnout vote. Uh, <laughs> we, we can say euphemistically uh, without saying too much. Um, very finally, George, you wanted me to do a bit of a, a recap of how our youngsters are getting on. Um, I mean, the truth is they haven't been playing a huge amount, but Yannick Sinner, even if he loses to whoever he's playing in the first round of Monte Carlo, uh, oh, Albert Ramos, Ramos. Ramos, even if he loses, he's probably going to go up into the top 20 in the world uh, for the first time on Monday, uh, barring barring a very decent run from a couple of legs below, which I don't think is very likely. Um, so he, he's going well, and, and Calvin, I think, had him at 32 when he picked him up, so... He's taken 35% off his ranking. Uh, Sebastian Corder hasn't played, as far as I know. So, uh, But he will feature, I think, pretty well in the uh, the clay court season. Um, although he does have quite a lot of points to defend. Although not that that matters huge amounts at the moment. Anyway, he's up to 66 in the world, which is OK. But he is going to drop a couple this week. Uh, and, of course, uh, Lorenzo Mazzetti, George. Uh, a wild card, which is effectively gifting points, uh, <laughs> and he's only he's only going up one place in the world, and he might he might come back down again, uh, depending mm. on if Salvatore Caruso uh, pulls his finger out and beats that Monacan qualifier. So, it's a marathon, I, not I, a sprint. Right, very good. Um, how are you feeling about your uh, Leila Annie Fernandez in the women's game? Because she is at a career high, seventy-two, mm. but she's not playing this week, uh, so I don't know how how well you're going to go in that. Uh, Anastasia Potapova is only three places behind her, Calvin. Ooh, Absolutely flying yeah. up. Uh, although she is not at a career high. I, we should have some sort of bonus for career highs. But anyway, that's for next year. Um, Clara Burrell, who I know you've all been following very closely, uh, my <laughs> pick, she is playing in, and I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, Oeiras this week, uh, which is in Portugal, I believe, uh, just outside Lisbon. Uh, not a huge amount of talent on show, I'll be honest. Uh, but she did just turn 20. So happy birthday, Clara. Uh, she's happy like birthday. 175 uh, in the world. Uh, and if she wins in our Eras, uh, she will go all the way up to 154, which is a big jump, I think we can all admit. And percentage-wise, is really going to put me in the running. It's, it's incredibly close. Like, between the yeah. three of us, it's it, remarkably close. But I think, George, you're very front-loaded on the clay court season. Yeah, I need, you, I need some Mazzetti big weeks from Mazzetti. Yeah, I think you're... I think whereas he... Calvin, later in the year, still has like fair amount to give with Potipov, very good on hard court, and Sinner, obviously, is an all-quarter. So. Yeah. I think, I think Mazzetti has a very high potential climb in the clay, though. I mean, he's got... Not too much. I know he obviously not, has not a if little he keeps losing first round, George, you won't. No, no, no. But I, I think <laughs> if he gets the right draw at the French Open, he could easily be a semi-finalist, in my opinion. Wow. <laughs> no, <okay>. That's, <laughs> that's incredibly optimistic. Just relying on, on live games and no one turning up to France. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very possible, Calvin. It's very possible. Yeah. Although I hear uh, in Monte Carlo this week, the players are being allowed to leave the bubble for an hour each day. Which, as someone pointed out on Twitter, 
that's not a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a hotel that people yeah. go in and out of. Uh, so it's dubious. I mean, you could regard Monte Carlo itself as a bubble. And mm-hmm. I can tell you that if the weather's that bad this week, no one will be there. Because last time I was in Monte Carlo, it was snowing and there was no one there. Because if there's a bad forecast, it's not like the only house you have is in Monaco. Like, it's definitely not your only house. I was, I was talking, he's actually played today, like a guy I know fairly well from the future circuit, a guy called Lucas Caterina, who's the highest ranked um, um, player from Monaco. Um, right. And I, I, he was a set and a break up. I don't know whether he ended up yeah, finishing he, it off. So um, I'm pretty sure they went on, he was playing Salvatore Caruso, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually almost brought him up a little bit earlier, because, but it's a story that's evolving. But, I mean, if he wins, that's, that's massive, right? Yeah, great lad as well. Great lad, very unorthodox style. He's got a full shovel backhand, um, wow. <laughs> and he's, he's not. I'm surprised Clay wouldn't be his best surface. He's a tricky customer on a low bouncing hard court. So he's everything really <laughs> flat. Um, but um, and he was telling me and something I'd never realised about Monaco. Like I don't know whether you guys know this, but Monte Carlo is the only place in Monaco. There's nowhere else in there, so it's it, like there are no other places. So I don't get. I why thought Monte Carlo was like. Uh, I thought it was a district of Monaco, but that I mean, that, yeah, but that there's, there's no name. other di- there's no other districts apparently. I see. Like, like, so it's like a country, but also it's like has, it's a place that has two names. Basically, yeah. the con- the country's called Monaco, but the city the only city there is Monte Carlo. Apparently, it, it, I have to say I've been a couple of times, and it, it is you know I mean don't stay there obviously because you have to bankrupt yourself, but. <laughs> it is quite an interesting, especially, I mean, for me, uh, as an F1 fan, it's obviously unbelievable because you just wander around the streets and you're, you just yeah. know all of the famous moments. And it, it's really surreal. And like when you're in like, you know, a coach from the Nice airport and you're like going up, you know, Mirabeau or something. And you're like, I've never I've yeah. never experienced it at such slow speeds. There's so much to see. Uh, it is a really interesting place. But yeah, like I said, I went in winter and it snowed and there was no one there. Apparently it has sorry sorry Joey. Apparently it has a, 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 a its own private policing as well for each street. The people on the streets just employ their own police there. Oh, that doesn't remotely and, surprise me. You know the French are really yeah, weird about yeah, police. You know they have three yeah. different police forces. Right, well, like the policier and the gendarme and then l'armée as well. It's really odd. Sorry, George. Love the police. I was just going to say as well. I mean, on, on, in terms of the tenants, I mean that you won't beat the view from centre court. I mean, it's just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Best. Mm. Best view at any tournament, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a special because it's right, it's quite near the sea, and it's in the sort of east end of Monaco, and you know, it's not like the east end of London, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it is a pretty spectacular spot. You can understand why people pay so much to go there. Um, we sort of slowly lowered our way into any other business. George, you've usually got some other business. Can can I interest you in any? Well, I was going to say, we didn't really do our intros at the start, so I had some little intro things to say oh, you had, you uh, had about my general life. <laughs> well, I tell you what, George, because uh, we, obviously re- we obviously go back and edit this. Uh, we'll, we'll put it in at the beginning, so I'll pretend. I can't wait. I can't wait. The beginning. Just well, try and just sound a little say. more sober than you do at the moment, like, like you've had an hour left drinking. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, uh, I mentioned my wrist problem last week. My self-diagnosis oh. turned out to be correct. The doctor says I've got De Quivain's tenosinitis or whatever it is. I, that, I tell that you right. what, that is, that is, that is brilliant GPing. Because when someone comes in and thinks they've got something, the best thing you can do is tell them they're right. And then they're Very like, unique. Excellent, yeah. yeah. And then they won't come back. 
So I'm off. I'm off for the next month as my tendons in my wrist look to heal. And you'll hopefully... be ruled out for a month. How many ranking points are you going to lose? Quite a lot. It's, it's <laughs> worrying. You... I may not George, make have... the front. Have you got your new ITF tennis number, George? Yet that's been rolled out, isn't it, at the minute? Yeah, I, I haven't received mine yet. They must have lost that in the post. But I don't think. You've seen it. I think. I think everyone has one. I think you just check it online. Oh right. Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Super I don't know. exciting. Super very exciting. It'll be very low. So uh, they've just got. They've just boosted the points at ITF level, haven't they? They've, I saw that news coming out the other week. They've just like, yeah. maybe just on the women's events, but. Um, Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll not dive into things that we don't know too much about. Um, George, do you want to do your little intro thing? Well, I, um, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I wouldn't bother putting it in the front, but I was just going to say, the reason I didn't, uh, I was just going to do a bit of a teaser, actually. Um, the reason I didn't get too drunk this afternoon uh, was not because of this podcast. Ooh, it's because I had a big interview. Ooh, at six o'clock that'll be revealed. I, I wish next I wish week. we were recording the Zoom because there is so little interest from the two other members <laughs> of the Zoom. Calvin's like biting his nails. I'm in fairness, he's already, in fairness, he's already told me who it was with. <laughs> so, so it's so one it, to be teased for next week. But it is quite a big name, isn't it, Calvin? It's it's quite big, yeah. And maybe I mean, I mean I'm interviewing maybe Harry a bold Dark, denier as well. <laughs> Oh, uh, so can can you beat Harriet Dart? Is it bigger than Harriet Dart? It it is. I would say marginally bigger than Harriet Dart. <laughs> marginally, okay. but it's un- right. under embargo to next week anyway. So yeah, it, it will have landed in time for our next podcast. But something to look forward to. See, that didn't need to be an intro. Uh, that's, a, that's a good finish. Come back next week yeah. and find out who it was. That's all from us. We'll see you next week. Cheers, guys. Podcast Network.